Blog Talk Radio.
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaji Tanta. Wawaka Yeme, Mwena Menshi. of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. Uh, It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, October the 23rd, 2021. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the escalating conflict uh, in the Corn of Africa state of Ethiopia, where the military has carried out airstrikes in the northern Tigray region. Sudan is undergoing another series of mass demonstrations over the political future of the country and the role of the defense forces. Zimbabwe is preparing for another day of action against Western sanctions. And South African political parties are campaigning for the upcoming local governmental elections. In the second hour, we look at the political and security situations in the Kingdom of Eswatini and the Republic of Sudan. Finally, we review important issues impacting Africa and the international community. These and other features uh, will be brought to you during the course of our program. 
We want everyone to stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take a musical interlude, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week. Africa Mobimba Bakulibao Independence Economy Mobutu Mokengedi Sikambo Monei Nasali Union Minera Zongi Mbokao Lokumuna Ye Lokumuna Biso Nabana Yoyatima Binomba Politician Soyeba Binomba Linga Mbongo Nampomengo E Bongo Bozoa Bongo Bozali, Kosa Bolingi, Kata Kurso Kouwawe Kati Peuple Balembi, Peuple Balembi, Balopi Non, Nambala Oyoye Nambala Oyoye, Asima Peuple Bako Vose Kanyo Yazamba, Lumumba Pa politicien Yakongo, Sanera Bango Papi Makateo
Ay 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 
Journal, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, <clears throat> and uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and that was uh, music uh, from uh, the African continent, uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, classic music uh, from uh, the continent. And right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story uh, deals with the uh, rapidly shifting political and security situation inside the Horn of African nation of Ethiopia and also the broader regional uh, Horn of Africa and uh, Dateline London, um, according uh, to an article published uh, in the Ethiopian Herald uh, earlier today, it says that Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia, a coalition for peace and cooperation has been holding a week-long sit-in protest in Downing Street, London, uh, this started on October the 22nd uh, to urge the United Kingdom, the European Union, and the United States to leave Africa's problems for Africans and bring uh, to halt their destructive intervention in the Horn of Africa as well. Now, it was learned uh, that the sit-in protests at Britain's corridors of power 
has been ongoing, uh, unabated, the rain or shine demanding that the U.K., the E.U., and the U.S. Uh, stop uh, their destructive intervention and to counter the intensive misinformation propagated uh, by Western media. The sit-in protest has also requested uh, the U.K., the European Union, and the United States leaders to think rationally and understand uh, Ethiopia's truth about uh, the conflict. Moreover, uh, the protesters called on Africans to engage in public protest and create awareness about the Ethiopian current situation and actively counter misinformation of the Western media as some Western governments are working against Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh, they said that, quote, we are protesting the intervention of the UK, uh, EU, and the US in the internal affairs of Africa. We are expecting to respond to us. We suggest the leader of the UK, the EU, and the US only stand uh, by the side of Africa uh, to put the notion of Africa's solution to Africa's problems. Uh, we are protesting in front of the office of the Prime Minister of Britain, Downing Street of London. Uh, people drawn from Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, and friends of the three countries have joined the protest that is expected uh, to end uh, today. And uh, another uh, issue, of course, is the reported uh, airstrikes uh, on Michele, uh launched uh, by the Ethiopian uh, Air Force. It says that the airstrike that uh, was carried out uh, yesterday uh, against the TPLF forces, their training center in Michele, has nothing to do with the World Food Program aircraft that has aborted its landing in the aforesaid city, uh, so disclosed the government communication services. The GCS uh, Minister Legese Tulu uh, told the local media in Ethiopia that, quote, unless the aircraft has its own problem, yesterday's airstrike has not forced the aircraft to abort its landing as the flight time and destination of both are completely different, unquote. Ethiopia Current Issues Fact Check reported that another one of the terrorist group TPLF's training center has been the target of airstrikes uh, yesterday as well. Uh, this site used to be uh, the Ethiopian National Defense Forces Training Center before being appropriated uh, by the TPLF to undertake uh, military training for its illegal recruits. It is also serving as a battle network hub uh, by uh, the terrorist organization. The government said its strikes targeted a base formerly belonging to the military and now being used uh, by uh, the TPLF. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent, uh, according uh, to uh, developments, and of course these uh, stories are headlines uh, in uh, today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Uh, so all you have to do is log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, to uh, read uh, these important uh, stories uh, that are developing uh, in the Horn of Africa as well as other uh, regions of uh, the African continent. Now, in uh, the uh, nation of uh, Sudan, uh, the U.S. State Department uh, yesterday called on Sudanese partners to adhere to the transition's benchmarks and cooperate together in its implementation towards uh, a peace, uh, towards what they call peace and democracy. Sudanese on Thursday massively took to the streets uh, to support democratic reforms paving the way for the civilian rule in Sudan. 
and powers are handover to civilians in line with the constitutional document governing the transition. The nationwide rallies took place one month after a failed coup attempt and days after a demonstration staged by a dissident faction of the ruling coalition calling for military rule. In a press briefing on yesterday, Ned Price, the U.S. State Department spokesperson, called on the members of the transitional government to heed the calls by the Sudanese demonstrators on Thursday. He further stressed the need to, quote, move forward in a spirit of dialogue and partnership to build on the momentum of yesterday's demonstrations, unquote. He said that, quote, we urge a progress on key transitional benchmarks necessary to stabilize the transition and resolve political differences, solidifying Sudan's historic democratic transition. U.S. Special Envoy uh, for the Horn of Africa, uh, Jeffrey Feltman, uh, on uh, October the 21st, stressed that the civilian and military components have to cooperate on the implementation of key benchmarks of the transition instead of seeking to sideline each other. If the transition is interrupted, if one side or the other in this civilian-military partnership tries to prevail, the U.S. Uh, support for all these issues, including debt relief, will be in question, Feltman told the National, a UAE-based newspaper. The envoy was in Khartoum on October the 3rd for talks uh, with the Sudanese civilian and military officials on the slow implementation of the democratic transition and urged uh, cooperation on the pending issues. Feltman told the uh, National that he would travel again to Khartoum to inform the Sudanese officials about Washington's position towards the current stalemate and lack of progress in the implementation of the transition's goals. My trip will just reinforce the strong U.S. support uh, for the Sudanese transition, but also make it clear that our continued support depends on that transition moving forward, he stressed. In his briefing on Friday, uh, Price did not respond to a question about when Feltman would visit Sudan. However, his deputy, Peyton Knopf, is already in Khartoum. Knopf uh, met with Sudanese Foreign Minister Maryam El-Makdi uh, to discuss the challenges facing the democratic transition, peace implementation, and efforts to bring the holdout groups to assign a peace agreement with the government. The United States Deputy Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa called for a consensus between all the partners of the transitional government to ensure the success of the transitional period to establish a full and solid democratic regime. Uh, that uh, was a statement released uh, by the foreign ministry in Khartoum. Uh, the visiting diplomat further stressed uh, the U.S. support for Sudan to achieve progress in the democratic reforms added the statement. Now, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, in the southern African state of Zimbabwe, President Mnangagwa uh, has commended uh, the country's citizens for resisting machinations by the country's detractors to affect regime change uh, through the use of illegal economic sanctions and polls to alienate the people from the ZANU-PF uh, by the United States and its allies. The president uh, yesterday told the ZANU-PF Politburo that sanctions uh, should be immediately removed as they are illegal, unjustified, and counterproductive. The call comes after President Mnangagwa this week met with the United Nations Special Rapporteur, uh, Ms. Elena Duhan, 
who is in the country to assess the impact of unilateral coercive measures on enjoyment of human rights. She is on a 10-day fact-finding mission whose outcome is expected to give the world a clear picture of the debilitating effects of the illegal sanctions. The high-profile visit by Ms. Duhan follows the United Nations Human Rights Council Resolution 3413 of 2017, which stresses that unilateral coercive measures and legislation were contrary to international law, international humanitarian law, the charter and norms and principles governing peaceful relations among states. President Mnangagwa said the government will continue calling for the unconditional removal of sanctions which are affecting the general populace. The Politburo session also coincides with the scaling up of preparations for uh, the Anti-Sanctions Day, which is to be held uh, in just in two days on October the 25th. The president said that our party and government will be joined by other SADAC member states as we amplify our unequivocal call for the unconditional removal of sanctions imposed on our beloved country. These sanctions are illegal, unjustified, counterproductive, and continue to hinder the people of Zimbabwe from enjoying their fundamental human rights to enjoy sovereignty, independence, unfettered development, and prosperity. The president urged the youth to be vigilant in defending the country's sovereignty and commended them uh, for uh, remaining resolute in resisting the regime change agenda. I commend the nation, particularly our young people, who continue to resist the use of these sanctions and other maneuvers as tools of regime change, said President Mnangagwa. Over the past two decades, uh, Zimbabwe has been groaning under the weight of illegal economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. and the European Union bloc as punishment uh, for the land reform program meant to address colonies' uh, land imbalances. Uh, since the illegal sanctions were imposed in 2001, 20 years ago, Zimbabwe has lost an estimated 42 billion U.S. dollars and an estimated uh, 4.5 billion U.S. dollars in donor support annually. And uh, this has gone on over the period of two decades. The country's lost $2 billion in IMF, World Bank, and African Development Bank loans, which could have helped in developing infrastructure as well as losing commercial loans amounting to $18 billion U.S. dollars, which could have been extended to the private sector and other companies. SADAC member states have since declared October 25th as anti-sanctions day, as the region experts pressure on the U.S. and its allies to remove the illegal sanctions choking Zimbabwe's development. And uh, finally, uh, inside of uh, the Republic of South Africa, uh, the various uh, political parties are preparing uh, for uh, the local government elections, uh, which will be occurring in approximately a week. And uh, the African National Congress chairperson, uh, Gwede Mantashi, has appealed to residents of the Moses Mabida region in KwaZulu-Natal to give the party another five-year extension to continue with his programs. Mantashi uh, was speaking in Zumbuzu sub-region of Sakakoba rally at the Edendale Sports Ground. The ANC was deployed, uh, Montasha, to uh, the Moses Mabita region in, in a move to garner support ahead of the November 1st municipal elections. Montasha uh, told supporters how the party want to ensure that social grants continue to be paid uh, to intended beneficiaries. The economic state of a household must not determine
the state of development. Uh, meanwhile, uh, other another party, uh, Action South Africa leader Herman Mashaba said revitalizing the communities across Johannesburg must be a priority. Mashaba was speaking in El Dorado Park, uh, south of Johannesburg. He was there as part of his mayoral campaign ahead of the local government elections. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment, uh, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and since then has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. Uh, if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most uh, pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, October 23rd, uh, 2021, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access uh, to today's uh, program, uh, but uh, well over 1,000 other archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, uh, of course, uh, the programs can be shared uh, with other potential listeners uh, by merely copying and pasting the links and uh, sending those links out to other potential listeners. Uh, The programs can also uh, be shared uh, by uh, merely uh, copying and pasting the links onto uh, blogs and websites. Uh, They can also be shared uh, through social media networks such as Facebook and uh, Twitter. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, we'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was the sound of the Soul Clan. Uh, yes, uh, the Soul Clan from 1968, uh, including uh, Arthur Conley and Solomon Burke, uh, Joe Tex, and Don Covey. Yeah, classic uh, music uh, from the days of uh, Stax Records. And uh, we're going to go right now uh, to uh, give an update uh, on uh, developments in Eswatini, formerly known as the Kingdom of Swaziland, uh, which has been undergoing a tremendous amount of unrest uh, over uh, the last uh, several months. And uh, this is a report from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. And, of course, there was a delegation from the Southern African Development Community that was deployed uh, to Eswatini uh, earlier this week and uh, we'll listen to the analysis surrounding uh, this event. Moving beyond the borders now, Eswatini's pro-democracy groups want SADC to send a peacekeeping mission to that country. This comes after the groups met with a delegation sent by President Cyril Ramaphosa in his capacity as the chairperson of the SADC organ on defense, politics and security cooperation. 
Former Minister Jeff Khadebe and Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Kenneth Mashekhot Lamini, met with King Swati III, the Eswatini government officials and pro-democracy groups. The country is plagued by unrest that started in late June with citizens calling for democratic reforms in Africa's last absolute monarchy. The unrest has led to the deaths of so many people, some injuries, arrests and extensive damage to properties and their claims of police using live ammunition on protesters. SADC Special Envoy in Eswatini, meeting with King Moswati III and pro-democracy groups. The envoy is in the country to listen to all sides and try to ease tension in the tiny kingdom. The president of the Umwani National Liberatory Congress says they are hopeful that the engagements will bring peace and stability. He decided some were burned alive, some have been shot, others are continuing to die. In the rural areas, they are being pulled out from their homes and, uh, and some thrown into crocodile rivers. Uh, this is the attitude that our king has. Uh, so when uh, Pre President Ramaphosa uh, sent Jeff Khatib leading uh, a delegation to to come and, and look at the impasse, uh, it gave us some hope. And what we inquired uh, from Troika this time was where is the report? Uh, because they came to Swaziland, uh, they, we, they took our submissions, uh, we said, where is the report? Because it was neither discussed nor debated, nor was it in the agenda in the SADC meeting in Malau. Uh, uh, and they said, no, the report is there, but it was handed to the king. And we have never seen it with our naked eye. Pro-democracy groups have urged the chairperson of SADC, Ogen, on defense, politics and security. President Cyril Ramaphosa to send a peacekeeping mission to the country. There are claims that at least 28 people have lost their lives since last week. We ask that uh, he sends a, a, a peacekeeping unit to face the army, uh, King Mswati's army, that is slaughtering Maswati every day. Uh, another thing that we sent, we, we sent to advise King Mswati to open talks where we are going to tell him what the Amaswati are looking for. They are looking for democracy and nothing less. Nurses have also joined the protest against the killing of citizens and have vowed not to treat injured police or soldiers. Government has stopped issuing protest permits and still restricting social media networks. Dumela Machoho, SABC News. Meanwhile, President Cyril Ramaphosa says that Sadak will support the kingdom as it embarks on the process of a national dialogue regarding the ruling system. Political activists are now calling for the country to be declared a republic and the government to be voted in. The Sadak envoy team met with the King, the Prime Minister Cleopas Sipodlamini, Deputy Prime Minister Senator Temba Masugu, civil society, political organizations and trade unions. All stakeholders agreed to open up the space for talks to address the challenges facing the kingdom. Meanwhile, Human Rights Watch says it's disappointed by Sadak's response. The president of South Africa 
For more on the situation in Eswatini, we're now joined by Wandile Ludu, the Secretary General of the People's United Democratic Movement, Pudemo. Wandile, very good evening to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Globe. Thank you very much, my brother, and welcome uh, to viewers at home. You know, Wandile, the past week we've seen uh, one of the worst forms of police brutality on innocent civilians, unarmed civilians, and uh, some, well, in some instances, as, a, as per the videos we've seen on social media, uh, the armed forces throwing tear gas inside a bus full of pro-democracy protesters. And, and I understand there's calls for a national shutdown in the coming days. So it does appear that the pro-democracy movement and the labor movement and political parties alike in, in Eswatini are not relenting in their calls for democratic reforms, isn't it? Certainly, uh, and uh, um, it is very clear that the people of Swaziland want democracy. They want democracy and they are prepared to bleed, they are prepared to die for it, as long as the king continues not to listen to the calls for democracy. We have five common points, what we call the five civil society common points, which basically speaks about uh, unbanning of political parties, uh, allowing a new constitutional, a democratic constitution, as well as a variety of other human rights and good government demands. Well, we've seen the SADC mission in the country as per the deployment of uh, the SADC, well, chairperson and organ on defense, the President Cyril Ramaphosa. And it does appear that the SADC delegation this time around is trying to redeem itself after a disastrous visit the last time, wherein, uh, you know, they, they did not include the other pro-democracy, you know, activists and other p political parties in their discussions and consultations. It does appear that this time around, uh, their consultations were wide-ranging and all-embracing. Are you at all happy with the SADC mission in the country? We welcome the efforts, efforts that have been made by the chairperson of SADC through the delegation as led by uh, Comrade uh, Jeff uh, Ratebe. We look forward. We did participate uh, as all, which is quite encouraging this time. And we are looking forward to a more decisive action on the part of SADAC in South Africa in particular, as a trading partner, as a neighbor, we cannot afford to tiptoe and move around like we are not sure what we're doing when there are glaring signs of flagrant abuse of state power by the king, 
complete up a, a violation of human rights and, and you know, adamantly on, on genuine calls for political uh, transformation. We want democracy and we want power from the monarchy to a constitutional democracy. Now, Wandila, when are you saying that you expect Sadak to take decisive action, what exactly is it that you expect Sadak to do? To relay the message, which is an aggregate demand of the people to the king, and also apply the conventions and treaties that Swaziland is a signatory to. There is, for instance, the Sadak uh, Democracy and Elections, uh, 2009 Mauritius Declaration on on elections and democracy, which spells out the conditions and the yardsticks that all African countries, SATA countries, must uphold. We have AU conventions on human rights and good governance that Swaziland is a signatory to. We cannot allow a situation where governments and heads of state go and sign and commit and in their backyard violate all this with impunity. This is human life. These are Swazi's lives, and Swazi's lives matter, and we think and deserve a more decisive, resolute reaching against human rights violation, against a, a regime that refused to respect the rule of law, as well as the right of nations to rule themselves, which is exactly what the king is doing. We fought against colonial masters exactly for this, and the monarchy has taken us back there, where it is denying us our right to self-determination and a right to run a government of our own, hire and fire a government based on performance, obviously. Now, one did the pro-democracy movement expects individual, you know, regional countries to condemn what you call corruption on the part of the monarchy and the lack of democracy in its entirety in the kingdom of Eswatini. So who among your neighbors uh, should speak and what exactly should they say and do? We, we call on all SADAC members, mm -hmm. and South Africa in particular. You know, there has got to be someone who gives the lead and someone who takes the leadership, yes. and someone who upholds the standards. Swazis are doing their part. But obviously we are fighting a state well-resourced, enjoying far more advantages than we will do, which is why to some degree we need the support of governments in the region. We cannot allow... We continue to talk about uh, African, prob African solutions for African problems. So this is the time to stand up and show the world that Africans are able to solve their own problems. Certainly, Swazis are faced with the monarchy that has grown to be totally something that is not what we all anticipate a monarchy to be. Even when we speak about our African traditions and cultures, what His Majesty and the monarchy today in Swaziland is, is totally contrary to our customary law, to our values, and to our principles as Africans. You can't have a king who does business and still is a leader. You can't have a king who kills his own people and soil his throne with blood of innocent, unarmed civilians. It can't. It can't, and we must stand up. And it is on that basis why we say, South Africa, we can't. It must stand up both because you are also a biggest trade partner 
You can't trade with a government whose blood, whose hands are full of blood. You can't trade with a partner who violates everything that we stand for. So we expect some decisive action, if need be, some form of sanction. Now, one delay, I want us to extend our analysis into the extent uh, of the democratic reforms that you're calling for. Do you want a constitutional monarch wherein the monarchy shares power with the people or you want Swaziland to be declared a republic and the King Swati gone? Simpiwe, the biggest challenge in Swaziland is the lack of democracy, is the lack of political freedom. Swazis, whether in political parties or individuals, in Swaziland they do not have a right to freely express, to freely think politically and also act. Political freedom, political thought is bent and criminalized in Swaziland. That, in our view, is the most important thing. What shape and form it takes, Swazis will decide that. The most important thing, which is why from Putemo's end, we advocate for a constitutional multi-party democracy because we think that is the most important thing that Swazis need. Whether it then turns out to be a republic or it becomes, it, it, it becomes a constitutional monarch, Swazis will decide that freely. And in our view, constitutional multi-party democracy, freedom is what Swazis need the most. A multi-party democracy with King Swati still a king or multi-party democracy and um, scrapping off the monarchy altogether? Simpiwe, the biggest problem Swazis have is freedom. Yes. Let us not be too boggled around what the king will be and where the king will be. Let us all as Africans be more concerned about political freedom in that, in that country called Swaziland, so that Swazis can freely organize themselves in a way that best works for them. If the monarchy embraces that it is time for multi-party, it will certainly, in one way or the other, become part of that future. But if the monarchy, if the monarchy continues not to listen as it does, if the, the, the monarchy digs in as it does, kills our people as it does, steal our land as it does, take our minerals as it does, arrogantly treat with disdain our people as it does, certainly it risks not being part of the future. When last did the progressives uh, in, in the political party movement in Swaziland have an audience with the king? I mean, what is he saying about this? Because my understanding is that his response to the calls for pro-democracy, he, uh, he just watered them down. He called some of these pro-democracy pro protesters as drunkards who are high on marijuana. So it reveals the depth of antipathy on the people who are calling for multi-party democracy in Swaziland. So uh, any indication that uh, you might have a cordial relation or rather a cordial discussion with His Majesty? Because I do understand that uh, he's now slowly easing into negotiating with the political movement. In our viewers, Pudemos and Pure and viewers, the future of Swaziland lies with Swaziland themselves. We say in our strategy and tactic, the first principle, the liberation of the Swazi people shall be the act of the people themselves. It does not hinge. The future of this country 
doesn't hinge with the monarchy. The monarchy is a subset. In fact, it's not even a subset. It's a product of our own making. We can certainly assure you, few. Our future will not be determined by the monarchy. It will be determined by the collective wisdom of the Swazi nation. With or without the monarchy, there will be a new Swaziland. There will be a democracy. There will be a government that will be elected by the people. The will power will only vest in a parliament that shall only be in the hands of a majority party from time to time. So we're not too worried about whether the king laughs or cries or insults us or what. There are many people who insult us. There are many people here who think we are mad. There are, people, there are many people who think we are crazy, but we are extremely encouraged that history and reality is vindicating our demands that we have been making as Pudemo and the various pro-democracy forces for the last four decades. You like it or it doesn't. The king, what he is doing, is as good as holding a tsunami, trying to hold a tsunami with his own head. And we wish him all the best. Wanjili Juju, lovely chatting to you, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Most welcome, my brother. All right, that was uh, Wandile Zuzu, the Secretary General of uh, Political Party Movement in the Kingdom of Eswatini, the Pudemo People's United Democratic Movement. This is The Globe on SAPC News. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, segment from the South African Broadcasting Corporation on uh, the current situation in Eswatini uh, in Southern Africa. Uh, Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland is an absolute uh, kingdom and monarchy, uh, the only remaining one on the African continent. It is a member of the Southern African Development Community, uh, the 16-member uh, uh, regional organization that includes South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Mozambique, Angola, uh, Mauritius, Seychelles, and uh, others. And uh, here's another report on the situation uh, in Eswatini. Uh, this is also from the SABC on the question of uh, the potential for South Africa imposing sanctions on uh, the government uh, of um, the kingdom of Eswatini. Let's listen in. And now for a look at uh, the situation in Eswatini. Now, the Swaziland Solidarity Network is alleging that Eswatini King Mswati III has sourced assistance from the Army of Equatorial Guinea to deal with the deteriorating situation in the kingdom. It says that uh, foreign soldiers are using live ammunition to shoot at pro-democracy protesters, and this has led to the deaths of at least seven people. Videos of security forces and police shooting at protesters are also making the rounds on social media and the protesters are calling for democratic reforms and the release of two arrested members of parliament. So for more on the latest situation in Eswatini, uh, we are joined on the line now uh, by Pudemo President Mlungisi Makanya. Mlungisi, good morning. Thanks so much for speaking to us. Good morning, Sakina, and good morning to the viewers. Let me see, as you know, it has been quite difficult to get a handle for foreign journalists on what is actually going on in Eswatini, given some of the crackdowns that have been put in place. So please explain to us, as we wake up this morning, what is currently the situation as you are in Manzini? 
The situation, it is very, very tense, Satina. Our people are being brutalized. Our people have been shot with life ammunition. Overnight, the soldiers and the police were going door to door, including in residences of healthcare workers, assaulting and harassing our people. You will remember, Sakina, that I think the last time me and you had an interview, it was after this king had procured for himself and his wife uh, rose rolls and a number of luxury vehicles. I remember at the time you raised the issue of showing his respect to the king, and I said, how are we expected to respect a king who is so insensitive to the plight of his people? Few months later, we are talking about a man who has killed over 100 Swazis, who has shot and jailed a lot of Swazis. And I'm wondering if you still believe such a man is worth of respect. So, and I think uh, context is important uh, here, Mlungisi. Uh, that was a question uh, around people who felt that, you know, because he is the king, he did uh, basically uh, need to be respected as such. But the developments as uh, they are unfolding at the moment, uh, you're talking about, um, you know, at least 100 people who may have been killed. Would this be from the protests, the riots that we saw earlier on in the year around June up until now? Because, again, as I said at the onset, so difficult for us um, outside of Eswatini to actually gauge what is going on there. You are absolutely correct, Sakina, and I was not in any way laying any blame on you. What I was trying to simply demonstrate here is that one of the reasons it is difficult even for yourselves and other international journalists, even local ones, to get information, it's precisely because this murderous regime is and making sure that the world does not get to see what is happening. As we are having this interview, Internet has been shut down since yesterday at around 10 a.m. after they started shooting at our people. And it, that's what makes it very difficult because when we tell our people and the rest of the world what is happening in Poland? It becomes unbelievable. This is a small country with a small population who are related, we know each other, and it is unbelievable that these soldiers and police that are killing people at the instruction of Mtuati, they are killing their own sisters and brothers. It is an extremely depressing situation. And, you know, from some of the videos that we saw uh, yesterday, Mlungisi, that are doing the rounds on social media, and, and maybe before we get to the videos doing the rounds, uh, the shutting down of the uh, Internet in Swaziland, of course, that in itself is a talking point because it's also meant to basically suppress the dissemination of information. So speak to us about that situation. And, of course, the king's eldest daughter also uh, heading up this particular sector. Yes, I mean, over and above what we have just lucidly stated, Akina, is the fact that when they shut the Internet down in June, we approached the court because we wanted to get a clear order from the court that would have prevented the shutting down again of the Internet. But the court up to date, despite that we had filed that application under the certificate of agency, 
it has still not delivered any verdict, precisely because Mtoati appoints the judges, he controls the judiciary. We are on our own, and it is on for this reason that we are appealing to the people of the region, the people of the continent, and the people of the world to please not forget the people of Kwazi. Kwazi lives matter too, and we continue to call upon Sadak, and in particular South Africa under the leadership of President Ramaphosa to please take decisive steps. It can be that they continue to look the other way where so many forces are being killed and so many of them have had to be amputated because they're being shot at by Mtswati's security forces. So President Ramaphosa, and uh, we've just been running this story this morning, has now appointed a special envoy to uh, Swaziland. Is that enough, do you think? Is, is, is that the sort of action that you would like to see? It's definitely a welcome move, but I'm not sure if we can say it enough. Remember, Sakina, when over 80 people were killed in June, early July, the then Chaperton of Sabah also sent a delegation here. And we have never seen the report. The biggest political movement in this country was never seen because um, Swati said uh, we are a proscribed organization at Pudemo. We can only hope that this time around the delegation that will be coming will do things differently. But I think up to now what is clear and apparent to us as oppressed people of Swaziland is that we are on our own. And if anything is going to happen, it is going to be through our efforts in the main. We are extremely disappointed and saddened by in particular South Africa, because we strongly believe South Africa holds the key in terms of what would happen in Swaziland. But also we have a history with South Africa where many of our families accommodated, housed, and held the operatives of the liberation movement in South Africa during the 30 years of apartheid. But uh, we understand that if Swaziland is to change, we are the ones who must do it and who are determined and committed to do exactly that. Mm. see, when you say South Africa can, should do more, what exactly would you like to see South Africa do as Pudemo? Well, as Pudemo, we are clear that, one, South Africa is by far our largest trading partner. Secondly, most of Mswati's stolen resources and his enablers, because it's not just Mswati alone, there are a lot of enablers who make it possible for Mswati to continue to do what he's doing, facing the Swan economy. They hide their money amongst other countries, they have the, the stolen funds amongst other countries in South Africa. He holds a significant investment in a lot of areas in South Africa. His children, his relatives, uh, are studying in South Africa. If South Africa were to agree, to say it will consider imposing targeted sanctions on the king and those who are responsible for the killings of innocent soldiers. If South Africa is to say we will not be, will continue with SACU as usual when the SACU resources are used to procure arms from Israel, Taiwan, and Russia that are used to kill the Muslim people, because it will change tomorrow. So we think that uh, South Africa can assist us, in particular because we are the biggest consumer of our uh, sugar, which is our biggest export here in Swaziland. 
And we think that there are a lot of leverage points that South Africa could consider using. Mm. And just finally, um, uh, Mlungisi, uh, there are, of course, uh, reports, at least uh, the Swaziland Solidarity Network are alleging uh, that uh, the king has sourced assistance uh, from uh, the Equatorial Guinea's army. So in that regard, are you aware of any foreign security forces currently operating in Eswatini? Yes, we, we are aware, Sakina. Um, how this started is that Equatorial Guinea would send uh, police cadets and army cadets under so-called uh, training exchange, military training exchange between Swaziland and Equatorial Guinea. And uh, it has been going on for some time now. But what changed this time around is that the close protesting service for the team, after um, leading to the June uprising, he then replaced the locals with a significant cohort of those from Equatorial Guinea. Our people were giving us reports that among the soldiers that were shooting them in June and July were people who can't speak the local language. And um, it was apparent to us that those were the forces from Equatorial Guinea. And our own forces who are in the military and the police have also confirmed things. So, yes. There are some equatorial Guinea forces who are providing protection to Swati, but also who are at the forefront of the attack together with some Swati soldiers and police of our people. Well, just finally, the king said he will not be engaging with people who are high on Dacha and drunkards. So what is the way forward in terms of the dialogue that is being sought with the king? Well, that was quite a very disturbing and frankly annoying thing because it was not the first time that the king has uttered uh, those words and speaks so disparagingly and paternalistically about the people of Swaziland. He has done it before, but we think this time around he has clearly crossed the line. And one that we can say is that the mistake he made he thinks that the dialogue we are calling for is a dialogue with him. It, it is not a dialogue with him. It is a dialogue amongst us as the Swazi people who left a few countries for ourselves. We don't think that it's fit for us even to have a dialogue with him. We are talking about a man here whose hands, hands are dripping with blood of over 100 people who have been killed. Many Swazis are languishing in jail as recent as yesterday. Young learners were appearing at the High Court in Swaziland, charged with treason and other very serious crimes for allegedly burning of a police station. This is the state of affairs in Swaziland. Swaziland will move into a democratic dispensation with or without the team. Well, we'll leave it there for uh, the right now. Thanks so much for your time uh, this morning. And that was uh, Mlungi Simakanya, the president of Pudemo. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a report on the situation in Eswatini, you know, the kingdom of, of Eswatini uh, in Southern Africa. As I mentioned before, a member of the Southern African Development Community, SADAC, and uh, we want to thank the South African Broadcasting Corporation for sharing uh, those reports on the situation in uh, the kingdom of Eswatini. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week. 
Protesters in Sudan are demanding the resignation of the interim government. Divisions are widening between the military and civilian leaders. So could this affect the transition into democratic rule? And what's the way out of this crisis? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program today with me, Peter Dobby. 
Sudan has been led by a government made up of both civilian and military leaders for more than two years now. But tension has risen between those in charge of steering the country towards elections under a 2019 power-sharing deal. That involves the forces of freedom and change, a civilian coalition which led the protest against the long-time leader Omar al-Bashir. Now a faction of that group is demanding a bigger representation in the transitional government. Its supporters held anti-government protests on Saturday, while those who back the military have called on the generals to take control of the country. And thousands are holding a sit-in in front of the presidential palace in Khartoum. Sudan's prime minister has warned his nation is facing its worst political crisis in recent years. I would not be exaggerating if I said this political crisis is the worst and most dangerous crisis that threatens the transition and even threatens our entire country and warns of a terrible evil. This is due to the deep splits among civilians and among the military, as well as between the civilians and the military. Okay, we'll get to our guest in just a moment. First, Heba Morgan in Khartoum sets up our discussion. The sit-in in front of the presidential palace in Sudan's capital Khartoum is now in third day, with protesters demanding Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok dissolve the executive cabinet and form one that they say should be more representative of those who took part in the revolution in December 2018. Now, thousands gathered in front of the presidential palace here in the capital Khartoum, but today a few hundred of those protesters that you can see went up to the Prime Minister's office as an emergency cabinet meeting was held to try to force him and put pressure on him to dissolve that cabinet that he's meeting with. Now, those who call for this sit-in and these protests are the forces of freedom and change coalition, but that's a subset of the mainstream coalition that led protests against former President Omar al-Bashir. Those new coalition, the new forces of freedom and change, say that they're not represented in the government despite the fact that they took part in the revolution. Now, the issue of representation is not just an issue here. In the East, there are protesters who've been blocking the port for more than a month, saying that the Juba peace agreement that was signed in October last year in the South Sudanese capital, Juba, is not representative, and they're demanding the government cancel that and start new negotiations for a peace agreement that has something to do with the East. Now, Sudan is a country with many ethnicities, many tribes, and many coalitions, many of them that have taken part in the of December 2018 revolution, but many who say that they're not represented in that, uh, in this current transitional government. Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok has described this current crisis as the most dangerous to Sudan's transition and to the country and has called on all sides to dialogue. But so far, that is yet to happen. Hiba Morgan, Khartoum, for Inside Story. Well, tensions between the military and civilian sides of Sudan's government, they have increased since last month's attempted coup. The military leaders have been demanding reforms to the Forces of Freedom and Change Coalition. They've also called for the replacement of the cabinet. Support for the transitional government has dropped in recent months after it slashed fuel subsidies and then inflation soared. While those who back the civilian leadership have accused the armed forces of wanting to take back control. Okay, let's bring in our guests. Today joining us from Khartoum is Mubarak Ardol, chair of the Political Bureau for the Democratic Alliance for Social Justice here in Doha. We have Walid Madibo, president of the Sudan Policy Forum, and also in Khartoum, Hajjouj Kuka, a member of the Girifana 
a non-violent resistance movement, and also he's an award-winning filmmaker. Gentlemen, a warm welcome to you all. Mubarak Ardal in Khartoum, coming to you first. Mr. Hamdok is describing what's going on in Sudan as one of the worst crises they've had in years. But is he part of the problem, not part of the solution? Let me greet your uh, guest, Mr. Walid and Mr. Hajjuj. And uh, I, wish, I would like to, to wish them all the best and all the best for our Sudanese and the movement of Sudan for democratic transformation and for our revolution. Actually, the problem here in Sudan is yeah, one of the big problems we are facing. We describe it as it is uh, easy to be solved and easy to be addressed. The people can sit in together, the parties to the conflicts, especially the, the people who hijacked the government of the revolution, whom are now on the screen taking the government from the Supreme Council to the Council of Ministries and to the regions, they have to sit and discuss with others to expand the participation of the government, to bring others to the government, to expand the participation socially and politically in order to avoid the country from going into dark, dark era. The, okay, the Mubarak, country, just let me pause you there and put that point to Walid Madibo here in Doha. Walid Madibo, if the country is to expand politically, if that's the solution, that means getting more people involved in a process. But at the moment, we understand the military is not united. The civilian administration is not united. So with that as a backstory, how do you bring more people into the process? I can understand the sense of uh, frustration of the Sudanese people with the forces of freedom and change, at least the earlier version, because uh, in a way they have been manipulating the General Assembly, the Central Council, and the Executive Office. However, uh, I can't understand how dissolving the government can help resolve uh, the situation, because if there is any failure, it is the failure of both uh, the Sovereign Council and uh, the Prime Minister's Office. Uh, when we speak about uh, expand, uh, being more inclusive, representative, uh, I, I think we should think about ways by which we can make the process of negotiation within the forces of freedom and change more democratic and more uh, uh, inclusive. Uh, that can be uh, that can be achieved by uh, getting engaged in deliberative uh, sessions uh, that uh, put uh, the higher strategic objective into sight. The, the higher strategic objective is ensuring that this transition is successful, because otherwise, if it's not successful, we are going to get into uh, going to get back into areas of authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Okay. Imagine if when we, when we speak about expanding the government, be, be more inclusive, we have to speak about the legislative body, we have to speak about the commissions, we have to speak about the sector security uh, reform 
we cannot simply speak about the prime minister's office because all in all there are at least 26 ministers. We can all be included in, in, the, in the council of the prime minister's office. But we can we can get included in other forms of the government. Understood. Uh, okay. Has uh, Judge Cooker in Khartoum yes. as well? Has Judge the people you speak for and the people you speak to? How unified are they? Let's let's talk about the urgency of the moment. Right now we're talking because there's something very urgent. There's protests. There's a sit-in right now in the street that does not represent the revolution. That does not look like anything that we were in the revolution, when the youth go to the sit-in, they're not welcome there, because it's a sit-in that's very obvious, orchestrated by uh, uh, some rebel groups, uh, some uh, national security officers. It's just a really weird-looking uh, sit-in where there's tents, there's food being delivered. So it's something that not, never looked like a revolution, and it's right in front of the palace, a place that we could never reach. So this is a sit-in that definitely is okayed by the military by uh, Burhan and by Himeti. And this is our problem. The real problem, and this is what we as revolutionary look, look at, is that we see this as handing over power and to the military. Our revolution was against two things, against the Islamic dictatorship that was running and the military. It was a military Islamic dictatorship. So now the Kazan, they're out of the picture, but the military was supposed to hand over the chairmanship uh, to the civilians very soon. And now, with this timely sit-in, with this timely attack on the government, it's a way for not handing over to civilians. So what we're out in the street is not to stop a democratic uh, and more people getting into a more diverse people in the government and all that. It is actually to stop the military state from taking power. So when people are going out on the 21st, it is to stop people from giving over powers, to stop Mubarak Ardul, to stop uh, the minister of uh, economy and to stop uh, Minni Minawi. And all these people are people in government. I'm actually really disappointed at Mubarak Ardun, who I considered a friend and a comrade in the revolution. And uh, out of everybody, he's, he's, very, he's been very close to the street. So it's really baffling to me how he thinks, although he is in government, he's in a really high position in government, uh, and how does he think that he needs to change and this is the right time. I feel like this is not the right time for what, what he's doing and it's not the right way to attack and change the government. Government needs to be changed from inside, and he is inside, but to hand over the government to military rule and go back to dictatorship is, is surprising, and it, it is exactly what we're fighting. Okay. We're fighting the military from going back. Okay, Mubarak Ardol there in Khartoum as well. I'm assuming that you want or you need to have good relations with the military, but there are people looking in on your country saying, the military will never relinquish what they've got at the moment because they're worried that at some point they will be held accountable. Uh, let me just uh, try to remind our colleague Hajjuj that we are coming from different backgrounds. Okay, Mubarak, can I just pause you there for a second, sir? It's quite a short program. Could you just answer the question, please? Uh, the revolutionaries. You don't need to describe them or to give them tickets so that to be revolutionaries. They are coming from different backgrounds. They are coming from different areas. They have on demand, and we are in semi-democratic era. Everyone will address his issues. So you don't need to say the rebel group. They are part of the peace uh, JPA, Juba Peace Agreement. They find they come here, and part of them are political movements. And now we are 
having a serious problem of of a democratic constitution or the democratic issues related to the government. The the the, the military relations is, is described in the constitutional document. We don't need to give them more than what they have, and it is not issue of relinquishment. It is issue of having their right and to keep our uh, relation with them according to the document that we signed. You know, Sudan is in a in a in a region that facing some stability problems, security and uh, political instability. There is Ethiopia, there is a peace, a fragile peace in South Sudan, and there is a problem in our western side of uh, the country, in Chad and others. We don't need to take the country uh, in escalation and to take it in a bad relation between the military and the civilians. Until we face the problem of instability, then it will create issues of migration, it will increase the migrants and other problems. We'll go back to the era of Bashir. The military, they have to work with the civilian in a partnership, in a good relation, until we end the era of the, the transitional period, until we enter the democratic era. And this one will require us to go for uh, serious measures of uh, of uh, democratization. Okay, okay. Mubarak Adol, just let me uh, boil those center. points down if I can and put those to Walid Madibo here in Doha. Walid Madibo, um, the military is also making demands. What's the difference between the military making its own demands of the civilian part of the administration or indeed of the people of the country? What's the difference between that and the military basically staging a power grab. If, if you look at the situation now, uh, they keep uh, the, the military officers. Uh, they keep uh, accusing the civilian uh, government of uh, of failure. But it's uh, that the army itself uh, has been in charge of four fifths of that failure. They have they have been obstructing uh, the file of uh, justice. Uh, they took care of the peace agreement, uh, which included some asymmetrical arrangement that is causing a lot of trouble now, uh, mainly the situation in Eastern Sudan. Uh, they, ha they had the file of foreign affairs. They went ahead without the consulting the Sudanese people and tried normalizing relationship with Israel. Uh, they, uh, they refuse uh, to, bring, uh, 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 to, to bring into accountability the, the companies that they have been administering for almost three decades. So what, what I see here, Peter, uh, there is, they, they, if I agree with uh, Comrade Ardul in the sense that given the situation of political and military instability, I don't see a problem with uh, Burhan, uh, the president, uh, continuing even to finish the, the whole period of the transition, provided that they can give the civilians back the files that should be under the discretion of uh, Hamdouk in the very fairest place. So in the case, the deadlock here is, is being caused by two things, uh, Mr. Dobe. The fairest problem is Burhan wants to finish the period, uh, the transitional period, and people should sit down and discuss the feasibility of that. The second issue, uh, we, we, and, and that's always in the, in the back uh, of the minds of the uh, military officers, is the whole, the, the, the lethal attack that was 
that was attempted against the protesters in the sit-in. Uh, the officers, they know that unless they are given impunity, I don't think that even at the end of the transitional period, they are going to give up power to the civilians. Okay. Hajjad Kuka, also in Khartoum. Democracy is a living thing. Seems to me, from what you three gentlemen have been saying, democracy is not alive and well. It seems to be frozen. The World Bank, a couple of days ago, saying the economy is trending in the right direction because inflation has come down to 388%, which is an astonishing percentage figure. There are so many variables in the country and in the broader region. Is there a chance here that the country is actually at a tipping point and it could yet head back to the bad old days of the 1990s? Okay, um, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we're we're back there. Uh, I feel uh, right now we reached a point in Sudan where going back to war is is an up uphill battle. It's going to be really hard to go back to war. Uh, the rebel groups that you're talking about, uh, the the minister of economy is one of the people with Erdogan who tried to ask to get the military to rule and whatnot. So the fight is political. The fight moved away. Even today, like if you go look at the sit-in, a lot of them are rebel soldiers. So, so the idea, the, the way people are fighting is different. I hope that we never go back to war. Uh, I, right now, I don't think there's a threat to go back to war. People are not threatening to go back to war. Really, right now, the talk is what uh, the gentleman we were just talking about. It's exactly... The idea, would, would we go to become a fully civilian country and take over uh, running the country economically and whatnot using civilian methods and trying to solve our issues using civilian methods? And that's what the revolutionaries want. And, and yes, the economy is really bad. The economy is going in directions that Mubarak Ardul and the minister Jibril know better than anybody else because they are in the forefront of the economy. And there's, there's a lot of battle that needs to go to get there. And there's, we need to finish this transitional period and get to a period where people can fight over uh, ruling the country using democratic methods. And I feel like we could get there. And we need to get over this one big hurdle, which is the symbolic gesture of giving power to civilians. That's why I think giving over the chairmanship uh, is really important symbolically because it just tells the military that now is the time where civilians rule the country and we as the military, our job is to defend, not to rule. Okay, Mubarak Ardol, also in Khartoum. What if the people you speak to and the people you speak for are investing in the military and it's the wrong side of the argument to invest in? Because arguably there are threats inside the country. That's why What's going on in Sudan has blipped on the radar for the State Department in Washington. There are other threats outside the country. You need a competent and a capable military. The worry outside the region is that the Sudanese military is not competent and it is not capable. Let me say one thing. We don't need to involve the issue of uh, military as a pretext for always to... to, to to, to avoid discussing issues related to the civilian-civilian issues. The military, according to the constitutional document, they will take over the, they will hand over the government to the civilian in July 2022. This is what I heard from one of the classified uh, uh, officers in the, in, the, in the Minister of Justice. He told us like that. 
And this is not issue now. The issue is reforming the ruling coalition, the FFC. It is the priority now because now the problem, now the, we have two FFC, the group I'm representing, and there is other group of FFC. Even to hand over to the civilian, as Hajjuj is asking, we need to agree whom to be handed over to the, the, the civilian and so that they will uh, continue. Moreover, the issue is not handing over. The democratization, it, not, it will not appear here. It will appear into when we go for a serious measures of democratization, like to conduct the census and to go for voter registration and an update of voter register, and go for other issues related to the law of the parties, the bill of the parties, and go for the election uh, to reform, to form the election uh, commission, and go forward into par real participation of the people in the, the transitional, uh, uh, transitional legislation, so that they will pass all these bills, and uh, those of uh, groups of uh, revolution, they will be part of that uh, uh, legislative council to, 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 pass, to pass the bills, and then to, 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 okay. to well, start Ardol, seriously I'm going to stop you there, because I just, in the last point. two minutes of the program, I, I do want to go back to Walid and Hajuj, both in, one in Doha, one in Khartoum. Walid, coming to you first. How much genuine desire do you detect on the part of everyone involved in this scenario to get back on track? I, I think uh, they, are all, they are all very genuine. I, I don't want to accuse... Uh, any anybody's uh, 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 in, to to ill intention anybody's uh, uh, intention in this uh, scenario. I think FFC one and FFC two they need to understand that uh, any further political polarization of the society is not going to help us with uh, stabilizing the Sudan and moving towards a democracy. It's going to negatively affect uh, the, this current situation, uh, but, but we have to be in mind that uh, some pressure ought to be exerted to make the civilian government more accountable to the Sudanese people. If you think of the liberal economic policies adopted by Hamdouk's government, I mean, it, it just went exactly against what the Revolutionary Front uh, uh, has been uh, calling for. Uh, they, uh, they bought into the fallacy of the World Bank and the IMF and adopted these liberal economic policies, which worsened the living conditions. Well, it, pardon me for interrupting you. The last point to Hajjuj Kuka in Khartoum. Hajjuj, in 30 seconds, are you optimistic that the civilian part of the administration will react in the right way to the pressure that's being directed at it just now. It just seems to be ignoring what's being said to it. Okay, so, so really I'm coming from the street. People are coming out on the 21st of October and we're pushing, and what we're really pushing for is for civilian role. Right now, I think it's way more important to have civilian role than any of the rest of the other things. And I think right now, Hamdok is actually on the right track for a change. And the most important thing about democratic transition is to get to democracy. The rest will follow. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you to our guests. They were Mubarak Adol, Walid Madibo, and Hajuj Kuka. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime via the website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, do go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Peter Dobby, and the team here in Doha, thanks for watching. We will see you very soon for the moment. Bye-bye.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a report, uh, inside story on the situation in Sudan. And uh, we're going to hear one additional report uh, from the FABC. Uh, this uh, discussed the character of the pro-military demonstrations uh, that occurred um, several days before uh, the pro-democracy uh, demonstrations took place, uh, which was on the 31st. Uh, let's listen in. Thousands of demonstrators gathered in front of the presidential palace in Khartoum in Sudan for two days. They are calling for the military to seize power as Sudan grapples with the biggest political crisis in its two-year-old transition. The military and civilian groups have been sharing power in the East African country in an uneasy alliance since the toppling of long-standing President Omar al-Bashir in 2019. Following a failed coup attempt in September attributed to forces loyal to Omar al-Bashir, military leaders have been demanding reforms to the so-called Forces of Freedom and Change Coalition and to the civilian cabinet. Civilian leaders, however, have accused them of aiming for a power grab. A military-aligned faction of the FFC, including armed groups that rebelled against Bashir, called for Saturday's protests. We came here today to bring back the revolution to its initial path, to its motto of peace, freedom and justice. Sudan is big enough for everyone, without one small group taking over at the expense of the rest. We hope that today we have a technocratic government, not a government of establishments or parties. The people now sitting on the throne in power that is, have raised banners. Ahead of the demonstrations, members of an unidentified armed group removed security barriers around government buildings and prevented the police and security forces from going about their work. At the root of the conflict are disputes on issues of justice, military restructuring and the dismantling of the financial apparatus of Bashir's regime. We are behind the army and behind Buran. There is no one but the army. The army is what we love, what makes us feel safe. The army is able, they are able to protect the country and lead it properly. When someone is afraid, they go and hide. But the only place we have to hide behind is these forces. In a speech on Friday, Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok presented a roadmap out of the crisis and warned that not finding a resolution would throw the country's future to the wind. Meanwhile, pro-civilian groups have called for more protests. For some analysis, we're now joined by Dr. Yok Madut Yok, a professor of citizenship and public affairs at uh, the Syracuse University. Dr. Yok, a very good evening to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Globe. Thank you, sir. Very good evening to you. Happy to be back. Indeed, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure having you join us this evening, Dr. Yok. I mean, on Friday, Sudan's Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok said on state television that uh, he actually agreed with the main political players on a roadmap to end this crisis. Do you think these protests will gain steam? These protests uh, will most likely gain steam uh, depending on which side the current military leadership, the ruling military council, which side they will take. Uh, you know, uh, Sudan is a very complex uh, country. 
Um, and for the last two years since al-Bashir was toppled, as you said in your opening remarks, uh, the whole world has celebrated a kind of a shift in, in the Sudanese uh, politics, uh, where now the focus should be improving the economy that was destroyed by dictatorship, uh, bringing peace to all the Sudan's peripheries in the Red Sea, in Darfur, in southern uh, Kordofan, and southern Brunei. These were very, very important items on the agenda of the revolution government. Uh, but there are two parties to this government that don't seem to get along on that agenda. One being the military council led by General uh, uh, Al-Burhan, uh, who seems to be uh, now trying to get the military to, to full control of the, of the state. Uh, and then on the other, uh, the civilian technocratic government run by Dr. Uh, Hamdok, which is saying that uh, the revolution was based on ensuring that democracy is exercised, the, all the warring areas are brought into the fold so that Sudan can live in peace with its own parties, uh, being, with, with, the, with the revolutionary parties being on board with that agenda. And, and there, there seems to be this uh, uh, pull uh, between uh, the military leaders of the current government and the civilian leaders of this government. And so I think if the military council sides with this call that the Sudanese people are now asking for a military return into power, uh, I think that, 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 that those protests will lead in that direction. But I also feel that those people who don't want the military to come back ever again, especially being suspicious that those are Burhan and Hameti, are remnants of Bashir, I think there is going to be a confrontation between those who want a military back and those who don't want a military back, and that Sudan should be run with, a, with this civilian government until at the end of the interim period, when the Sudanese people will go to the polls to decide the future of their country. Uh, and, and I think there is now a threat to the stability to that government, that government that was brought by that amazing revolution that the Sudanese people brought about in 2019. Okay. And the country's security service has uh, slapped a travel ban on members of a task force overseeing the country's transition to democracy. What is informing such overtly stringent measures? Well, I think uh, the, as the military seem to regain control of the country, they are suspicious of uh, numerous people, including people who are party to the wars in Darfur and Kordofan and Blue Nile and the civilian government. Uh, because they are now increasingly being accused of being in the pay of foreign, fo uh, or at least being uh, co-opted by foreign forces uh, aimed at uh, destabilizing Sudan. So they, they, they are preventing their travel because they think these are the people who will go and talk, uh, <coughs> excuse me, going to talk about the failures of the military leadership. And, and so they are prevented as a way to, to, to ensure that they don't say these things uh, on a global stage at the African Union or the United Nations. Okay, and uh, Dr. York, the, the authorities made up of the military and civilians, 
are supposed to lead the country towards elections, are they not? But they keep pushing back the deadline currently to 2023. So what are some of the main key issues of contention within the forces of freedom and the change coalition and the civilian cabinet? So, so you have the change uh, coalition, the freedom and change coalition, which is made up of people who were actually on the streets to topple al-Bashir in 2019. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, because of that negotiation, now the military insisted on having a portion of that. And so you have a, basically a, a, a bifurcated system of government where you have the military still trying to insist on total control of the state, and then you have a civilian government which is saying that we must democratize, we must improve the economy, uh, we must pursue the people who destroyed our economy, uh, the loyalists to, to al-Bashir. So I think that remains a bone of contention between these two sections of the same government. And, and I think it is not going to be resolved until uh, one side has indeed uh, ensured in, in, in that the Sudanese people are behind them. The way I'm seeing so many people now going into the, into the uh, protesting in front of government buildings, and the army and the police are not stopping them, suggests that the, the military is actually encouraging this protest because the protests seem to be increasingly against the civilian part of the government uh, in favor of the military junta. And if the junta have, uh, has its way, um, then they will push the elections until they have organized themselves to ensure that the person who comes to power following the elections is somebody, somebody who is going to uh, maintain the same policies uh, dating back to al-Bashir time. This is the ominous uh, situation that is facing the Sudanese people, the possibility of return of allies of al-Bashir through Hameti, through al-Burhan. Um, the country is not going to be able to be stabilized because now, therefore, Red Sea hills, uh, uh, Kordofan. In fact, uh, a lot of the military people who are protesting today were saying that there has been too much uh, power given to the people of Darfur, especially to the poor and Zagawa, who had been fighting the Sudan government. Uh, and I think um, if, if that doesn't happen, the Sudan will go back to war in all its peripheries. And it's going to uh, look like it's uh, falling apart once again, especially at the seams. Yeah, and the stability will basically be you know, a challenge because the country is caught between inflation approaching 400% on the one hand and an austerity decreed by the International Monetary Fund on the other hand. So how do these protests further complicate the economic situation in Sudan, if at all? They, they very much complicate that uh, situation because um, the, the, the austerity measures are required as a, as a basis for uh, investment, as a basis for further loans from IMF and World Bank uh, for uh, debt relief. If you don't go ahead with the austerities, you will lose those allies. But if you go ahead with them, you will lose your people who are now saying they can no longer afford a piece of bread. Uh, and so you are, you are, you are, you are in a serious bind as a government. Uh, the, the, the easiest thing that could be done is for the two sides of the current government to sit together and speed through the transitional period, which will then give the world a sense that democratization is happening, and not push back the date for elections, because the Sudanese people are dire, uh, waiting for, for that time when they will, in 30-something in, in years, they will have finally been able to vote in the people they want, the leaders they want, rather than the military having ruled for this long. Yeah.
Yeah. And to what extent then are forces who, who are close to the disposed uh, you know, Omar al-Bashir influencing these fractures that we see within the coalition government? My sense is that they are very much influential, uh, especially through the military leaders themselves who are still remaining in the government. Uh, a lot of Sudanese people suspect that these military leaders which are part of the coalition government are actually al-Bashir allies. Uh, this is why they, uh, they, they drag their feet in, 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 in trying them in court and, and, and in uh, cooperating with the ICC. Um, and, and perhaps uh, there is a, a plot to, for al-Bashir party, even, though, even if al-Bashir himself doesn't come back, uh, that the people who, who will come to control the Sudan heretofore are people who will uh, be his allies and are in uh, favoring uh, his, his release and his freedom. All right, Dr. York, lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you, sir. All right, that was uh, Dr. York Madhub-Jok. Uh, he's a professor of citizenship and public affairs at Syracuse University, joining us uh, via Zoom. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, interview uh, on the situation in the Republic of Sudan, and uh, we're going to continue to cover uh, this important subject. And if you want to uh, stay abreast of developments in Sudan, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire at uh, panafricannews.blog, and uh, you can find out uh, what is actually happening uh, from a myriad of perspectives in uh, the Republic of Sudan. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment. You leave your home for days and days And I know, I said I know You got another woman somewhere around Hey, I'm a good woman Treat me like dirt I don't go nowhere You don't take me out If I put on a nice dress, baby You wanna start a fight Even my next door neighbor Now I know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna move Away from here And pretend That I have happiness Yes, I know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna leave you Change gonna come. A change. 
twice uh, the music, the guitar of uh, Barbara Lynn uh, with her tune entitled Good Woman. And uh, right now we want to move into a report uh, from uh, Africa Live, CGTN, uh, on uh, recent developments on the African continent and uh, the international community. Uh, Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to the World Today here on CGTN. I'm Mahia Mutua in Nairobi. Here are your top stories. Countries around the world report a surge in COVID-19 infections as others relax restrictions. US and France seek to mend ties after fallout over Australia's submarine deal. And Russia says NATO's determined plan shows it was right to cut ties with the alliance begin with health matters, COVID is spreading fast in many parts of the world. In Russia, Friday was the second consecutive day of record cases and the fourth straight day of record deaths. Moscow will reimpose a partial lockdown on October the 28th. In Britain, nearly 50,000 new cases were recorded after most restrictions were lifted. The country has reported more than 40,000 infections for 10 days running. The Australian state of Victoria recorded more than 17,000 cases and nine deaths on Friday. The state's capital, Melbourne, has just come out of the world's longest lockdown. Meanwhile, the Chinese mainland has reported 50 new COVID-19 infections, including 38 local cases. Huang Yue has more from Beijing. Sixteen of the newly registered cases yesterday were in Gansu, 11 in Inner Mongolia, six in Beijing, three in Ningxia, and one in Yunnan. Among the confirmed cases in Gansu, 12 are from the same tour group, including tourists, two drivers, and a tourist guide. And they had traveled to Asian Banner of Inner Mongolia and also traveled to several sites in Gansu province. Others are close contacts of these people. So as you can see, Asian Banner of Inner Mongolia is one of the key areas in this round of flare-up. This place now has a total of uh, 24 confirmed cases. And actually, this is a famous tourist destination, especially during autumn, because every October, a large number of tourists from all over the country will go there to visit its populous Euphratica forest. So now for this place, it's the peak travel season of the year. And that's why so far, nearly 10,000 tourists have been held up there. And the local authorities are trying their best to take care of them and arrange the tests for them. Also, hotels and restaurants there have started to provide free lunch to these tourists since yesterday. Uh, While among the three new cases in Ningxia, two are also from the same tourist group, which consists of 10 people. So far, six members of this group have been confirmed infections. Uh, The one new case reported in Yunnan is a close contact of uh, previous cases. So far, uh, across the whole country, uh, there are two high-risk areas, which are in Asian Banner of Inner Mongolia and in Beijing, and eight medium-risk areas in Inner Mongolia, Gansu, and Guizhou. 
And since uh, these sporadic cases are all linked to trans-regional trouble, the Chinese authorities have called on the regions to work together and uh, share information in a timely manner to uh, block the transmission chain of the virus. Well, several countries are, however, reopening their borders. The U.S. will allow fully vaccinated visitors from more countries starting from November the 8th. That includes people from more than 30 countries who've been barred since last March. And in Australia, vaccinated citizens and permanent residents will be able to travel internationally next month. The country is moving away from its strict zero COVID strategy after 18 months of some of the world's toughest border restrictions. New Zealand says it'll end lockdown measures and restore more freedoms when 90% of its eligible population is fully vaccinated. Israel, meanwhile, will reopen next month to fully vaccinated tourists. The U.S. says its COVID-19 booster program is off to a strong start. Health officials have approved a mix-and-match approach in addition to booster shots from Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. Meanwhile, Pfizer says its vaccine is 91% effective for children aged 5 to 11. As Nick Harper reports, vaccinations for these children could start next month. White House says 70 million Americans are now eligible for booster shots and they can choose which one they receive. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has approved boosters of Moderna and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. And patients can choose what they get, even if it's different from what they were originally inoculated with. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, though, said officials are not recommending one booster over another. We are, will not articulate a preference. My understanding is that most people will um, have done largely well with the initial vaccine that they got and may express the preference very much for the original vaccine series they got having done very well. There may be some people who um, might prefer another vaccine over the one that they received, and the, the current CDC recommendations now make that possible. 10 million Americans have already received booster shots. And the White House says another 50 million will become eligible in the coming months. People who originally received Pfizer or Moderna doses more than six months ago and are aged 65 or older or at high risk are eligible. While anyone who initially received the single shot J&J dose two months or more ago is now eligible. And now children could also soon be in line to start receiving COVID-19 vaccinations. Trial data from Pfizer shows that its dose is highly effective in 5 to 11 year olds. And next week, Food and Drug Administration advisors will decide whether to recommend vaccinations for children. However, there's growing concern about state restrictions. More than half of America's 50 states have now introduced laws making it harder for authorities to address the health crisis. At least 32 states have put in place measures such as banning masks or vaccine mandates. Health officials are worried it will prevent them from imposing a range of measures, including quarantines, if there's a surge in cases over the winter months. Nick Harper, CGTN. Washington. Leaders of France and the United States have discussed boosting defenses in Europe. This comes as the two countries work to mend fences after a rift over submarine contracts involving Australia and Britain. Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron in a phone conversation also discussed efforts to support stability and security in the Sahel region and enhance cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. 
The two leaders are meeting in Rome later this month at a summit of leaders from the group of 20 major economies. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris will also visit France next month. She will meet with Macron and participate in the Paris Conference on Libya on November the 12th. The Kremlin says NATO's new plan to deter Russia fully justifies Moscow's decision to end all official dialogue with the alliance. A master plan agreed by NATO defense ministers this week included statements to defend against potential Russian threats on multiple fronts. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said a NATO, Russia-NATO dialogue under such conditions is unnecessary. He also said Russia has never harbored any illusion regarding NATO, adding that the alliance was conceived and formed from confrontation. Days earlier, Russia cut relations by shutting its diplomatic mission to NATO and the alliance's mission in Moscow after NATO expelled eight Russians alleged as spying. The U.S. Defense Secretary has also weighed in on the worsening relations. I think what President Biden uh, wants out of uh of any kind of relationship with Russia is predictability and stability. And I think uh, with nations uh, like ours, I think that's very, very important. Again, uh, we want to make sure that we continue to support our allies and partners uh, in, uh, in their desire to protect their sovereign territory and, and uh, their desire to, uh, to increase their, re their resilience. A two-day European Union summit has wrapped up. Tributes were paid to outgoing German Chancellor Angela Merkel. There were no agreements on the energy crunch facing the bloc and Poland was told to respect EU law. Giles Gibson has more now from Brussels. At the end of this two-day summit here in Brussels, there was a sense that Europe's leaders agreed on the biggest challenges currently facing the bloc, but not exactly on what the responses to those challenges should be. When it comes to rising energy prices as we head into the winter months here in Europe, uh, the European Commission has committed to exploring joint procurement of natural gas uh, as well as uh, looking into establishing a strategic gas reserve uh, before uh, the next European Council meeting coming up in the middle of December. When it comes to migration and this surge in undocumented migrants coming into uh, countries in the east of the European Union, from Belarus. Uh, Lithuania's president, amongst others, had actually proposed building some sort of physical fence or even a, a border wall along the uh, eastern frontier of the EU. But the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, pushed back very strongly against that idea, uh, saying that as far as the European Commission is concerned, they don't want to see funding for uh, barbed wire or walls. Uh, when it comes to the long-standing disputes between Warsaw and Brussels over the rule of law in Poland. Uh, we heard from French President Emmanuel Macron saying that they need to see concrete moves from Poland, uh, including steps to reassure Brussels that they are re restoring the independence of the judiciary. And just finally, this was a bit of a swan song for one of the European leaders at this summit. Uh, if German political parties can work out a new governing coalition before the next European Council meeting in the middle of December, then this will be the 107th and final EU summit for German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, she got a bit of a tribute from the European Council President Charles Michel saying that an EU summit without Angela Merkel is like Paris without the Eiffel Tower. 
and she also got a special video tribute from former US President Barack Obama. Giles Gibson, CGTN, Brussels. Global oil prices have climbed as tight supplies persist. In the UK, prices at the pump have reached their highest level in eight years. The average price of a litre of gas has reached £1.35 or 73 cents. In Japan, the average price of regular gasoline has hit a seven-year high at 166 yen or $1.46 per litre. In South Korea, the average gasoline price nationwide stands at around 1,701 or $1.45 per litre, the highest since 2014. Higher oil prices and lower fuel production have pushed up fuel prices in the United States as well. The average national cost is around 89 cents per litre and in Los Angeles, the average price has risen for several days, resulting in the biggest weekly jump since March. Residents there are complaining about the rising cost. It is actually, it's a really big problem because I mean gas prices like, well, like about $4 now and I mean if somebody makes about $10 an hour, I mean it's a big problem for them to even fill up their gas tank because it's like $60, $65. Um, but prices have been going up from day by day and even like gas and then even groceries and everything, the prices are skyrocketing. It's crazy because for me, it takes to fill up my car like $60 every week. Before it used to be 40 and that's it for this edition of the world today i'll be back shortly with more news from the continent on africa live thanks for watching GTN, China Global Television Network.
The United Nations suspends humanitarian flights to Tigray's capital as fighting rages on in northern Ethiopia. Tunisia imposes COVID-19 passes requirement on all its citizens and foreign visitors. And the murder of Kenyan athlete Agnes Tirop spotlights rising cases of gender-based violence. Hello and welcome to Africa Live only on CGTN. I'm Mahia Mutua in Nairobi. Also coming up this hour. In business, DRC port workers clash with police in standoff over unpaid salaries. And in sports, South Africa's fearless female motorcycle rider, Kirsten Landman, eyes another slice of Dakar rally history. We begin the top of the hour in Ethiopia, where the United Nations has suspended all flights to the Tigray capital of Mekele. This after a UN humanitarian plane with 11 passengers had to abort landing on Friday. According to the UN, the flight from Addis Ababa was forced to turn back following airstrikes on Mekele. The government says the latest attack targeted a TPLF military training facility. Since November last year, fighting between Ethiopia's federal forces and Tigray rebels has killed hundreds. The UN says more than 7 million people are now in need of humanitarian assistance. A UN humanitarian flight that departed out of Sababa this morning was first forced to turn back in the midst of its flight after airstrikes began in Mekele. I can confirm that the government was informed of that flight before it took off, and of course also confirmed that the flight was forced to turn back in midair because of the events on the ground. While we're still ascertaining all of the facts in relation to this event, we're obviously concerned about what has taken place today and what it means for humanitarian operations in northern Ethiopia moving forward. Today, there are around 7 million people in northern Ethiopia in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. That includes over 5 million people in the Tigray region and the other 2 million are split between Ampara and Afar. Meanwhile, Tigray rebels say they've captured over 400 government soldiers and allied militias in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Celebratory gunfire and car horns could be heard as trucks full of captured soldiers made their way through Mekele. In recent months, fighting has spread into the neighboring Amhara and Afar regions. Well, CGTN's Girum Chala has the latest from Addis Ababa. Girum, as we're hearing there, the United Nations has suspended flights to Tigray's capital, Mekele. Uh, how are Ethiopian authorities responding to this latest decision by the UN? Well, we will see if we can get Giroum for further comment on that. Meanwhile, Tunisia is imposing COVID-19 vaccine passes on all its citizens and foreign visitors. The presidential decree issued on Friday states that authorities will give a pass to every person who's received vaccination and foreign visitors who present a certificate of vaccination upon arrival to the country. The vaccine pass will also be a necessary document for traveling abroad and allow people to access public and private places. These include cafes, restaurants, hotels and tourist establishments. According to a Tunisia's Ministry of Health, more than 4.2 million Tunisians have been fully vaccinated. Last month, authorities lifted the night curfew as infections in the country dropped. 
to South Africa now where the country has began inoculating teenagers as part of the country's COVID-19 vaccination program. The new cohort, consisting of 12 to 17-year-olds, will receive just one dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. The country's health department has begun vaccinating the youth after carefully considering potential safety issues. Those include the inflammation of the heart muscle observed in male adolescents and young adults. CGTN's Travis Andrews has more. South Africa's COVID-19 vaccination program is picking up speed as the country makes more vaccines available. Now the Department of Health has added a new cohort to the vaccination program. Children aged between 12 and 17 years old are now eligible for inoculation. Some youth are clearly encouraged that their time to receive the jab has finally arrived. Well, most, most of us in the school are vaccinated and most of us, we have our social distance, we have our masks on and yeah, we keep it, we keep it to, the, to the rules of the government. Expanding South Africa's vaccination program to include teens has added another 6 million people to the program and further boosted the country's fight against the pandemic. While the slow uptake of vaccinations in people over 50 years of age remains a concern for health officials, some in the community hope the youth will be more open to getting vaccinated. Because the 12 to 7 year old, 16 year old groups are more interactive, they're more like they're more together, they like want to be more out than things to do. So it's good that they should get vaccinated because they're more interactive. While more than 20 million South Africans have already been vaccinated, the government hopes the new cohort will push that figure even higher and closer to some sort of population immunity. While issues such as myocarditis has been attributed to inoculations, health experts still believe the vaccines remain relatively safe for youth and teenagers. The idea, I think, with mass vaccination is to reduce everybody's high risk um, across the board. And so, you know, I think by vaccinating these individuals, we are still taking into consideration a risk and a benefit ratio. Um, and luckily that myocarditis is rare. When it does occur, it seems to be mild and self-limiting. To further mitigate the safety of vaccinations in children, the government plans to only administer a single dose until further research and data is collected that can inform future decisions. Travis Andrews, CGTN, Cape Town. Well, taking you back to our top story here on Africa Live, where the United Nations has suspended all flights to the Tigray capital of Mekele in Ethiopia. This came after a UN humanitarian plane with 11 passengers was forced to abort landing on Friday. Uh, according to the UN, the flight from Addis Ababa was forced to turn back following airstrikes on Mekele. Well, let's get further details on this. CGTN's Girum Chala is standing by for us in Addis Ababa and fully audible. Girum, the UN has suspended flights to Tigray's capital, Mekele. How are Ethiopian authorities responding to this latest decision? Well, Maya, first of all, uh, these humanitarian flights started a few months back in order to provide uh, the basic support for uh, humanitarian activities in Mekele city. So they've been transporting cash and other things. And now that has been suspended, as we have heard, and Ethiopian authorities were, were also informed about it. Uh, authorities we spoke to at the foreign ministry are saying that, well, they regret uh, the happening as war is continuing, insecurity is not going to allow humanitarian activities 
uh, to continue normally. So they hope that in the next uh, few days, uh, these humanitarian flights uh, will resume, uh, hopefully. Uh, but until then, uh, we should wait and see uh, these developments. Unfortunately, war has continued and uh, fightings are also escalating in uh, the three regions, uh, Amhara, Afar, and the Tigray regional state, uh, Mahia. And Girum, uh, the UN has already warned that 7 million people are in need of urgent humanitarian aid there. Uh, how is this suspension of flights going to affect humanitarian effect activities in the affected region? They will definitely uh, affect humanitarian activities because these flights, as I was saying earlier, we're supporting humanitarian activities on the ground. We're also supporting the, the staff, uh, including paying their salaries and, and providing them cash and other things. Uh, these are people that the UN referring to who are going to be affected or affect, are already uh, affected by uh, the situation in the north, uh, uh, live in the three regional states, not only in the Tigray regional state, but Afar and also the Amhara regional state. So uh, supporting these people, providing them uh, for food, uh, shelter, uh, water and other services is uh, really uh, something that needs to be done in every day every hour basis and it, this has already been uh, in a short uh, situation uh, before the UN is complaining that uh, as much as it wanted it was not uh, providing uh, food services including the Tigray regional state so this uh, flight uh, pose is going to affect of course uh, the people who are supposed to be uh, provided with humanitarian assistance but there is also another problem Maya uh, just to bring it to your attention trucks are already in uh, short supply. The United Nations has been also confirming this. The government is saying that those trucks, hundreds of them, which have interred uh, the Tigray regional state, never returned, and that has created a lot of problems when it comes to delivering food aid for those people who are in dire need of uh, these uh, assistance. So uh, the, already there is an existing problem of lack of trucks shortage of trucks, a huge uh, problem there, and now uh, the pose of uh, the humanitarian flight. So uh, this is really a serious situation, Maya. And uh, finally, Giruma, rebels in Tigray have also paraded government soldiers that they say uh, were captured in the region. How is the government reacting to this? Well, we have seen uh, uh, those footages coming uh, from the Tigray regional state, uh, the state TV, and also from uh, social media. Uh, by the way, we, we spoke to, again, uh, foreign ministry and the NDF officials. Uh, they're saying that they cannot uh, verify uh, if uh, this is a really a, a genuine, uh, truthful video that has been released. Uh, one. Two, uh, the TPLF is acting uh, out of law because even if this is a war, according to them, there is a law and uh, these are uh, legally, they, they were supposed to be held legally and also be protected, not uh, paraded uh, like they have been done before and as you have seen it, uh, full of trucks uh, at the same time. So this is really an international crime and even uh, war has its own laws and it, it was not supposed to happen even if uh, we can verify this or not. So that's what they are saying and they are not really uh, happy with the situation uh, that the, the TPLF is handling, even if uh, uh, these are legal soldiers uh, or not. So uh, also we have to understand that the war at the moment is uh, now uh, spreading in different uh, sides of uh, uh, the regions, the three regions I was uh, uh, earlier mentioning, and uh, uh, in the next uh, few days the humanitarian situation also needs to be addressed. This needs to be emphasized and the government also confirms that it wants to work with the UN time and again.
All right. Thank you for keeping us updated here on Africa Live. Girum Chala there joining us from Addis Ababa. Well, crossing the border, the funeral service of slain Olympian and world record holder Agnes Tirop is currently underway in her rural home in Nandi County in northern Kenya. The fallen star, who would have celebrated her 26th birthday today, was murdered 10 days ago with her estranged husband Ibrahim Rotich in custody as the prime suspect in the brutal killing. Thousands of mourners, including elite Kenyan athletes, government officials and representatives from governing body World Athletics, are attending the burial. Authorities are calling for patience, promising that full investigations will take place to determine the motive of the murder that has shocked a nation and the world. Tirop's friends, family and fellow athletes have been eulogizing the women's 10 kilometers world record holder at the emotional funeral. It's a bad moment to us and uh, Agnes Tirov is our champion. I remember many things to Agnes Tirov. Uh, first of all, I remember him when he won a record in, uh, in Germany. I was the one who gave a flower after winning, uh, after breaking record. It was so sad to me. I remember Agnes in 2019 when we were in World Championship because Agnes uh, got a bronze medalist in 10,000 and I got a bronze medalist in Marathon. So. Agnes, uh, we, we, we share a light moment with Agnes and, uh, after the race because 10,000 was about uh, same, almost the same day with the marathon because uh, Agnes was in, uh, we had the same in management with Agnes, uh, Gianni Damadona had the promotion and we got the same uh, medal, bronze in 10,000 and I got bronze in marathon. So on that time we really say, wow, you get a bronze and we are the same in family over the little, so it was really, it's really painful. Well, a medal-minting runner, since she was a teenager, Agnes Tirop won the women's 10,000 meters bronze medal for Kenya at the London 2017 and Doha 2019 World Championships. Before her untimely death, she broke the world record in a 10-kilometer women-only event. She set a time of 30 minutes and one second in Germany on the 12th of September to shatter the previous mark by 28 seconds. Earlier this month, she came second in the Giants Geneva race behind Kalkidan Gezahegne in a time of 30 minutes and 20 seconds. On the 2nd of August, Tirop ran 14 minutes 39.62 seconds to finish fourth in the women's 5,000 meters final at the Tokyo Olympics in Japan, losing the bronze to Ethiopia's Gudaf Tsegai by less than a second. Well, let's get more on this story now. Sadiq Shaban joins us from Kapsabet town in Nandi County. Uh, Sadiq, as we're hearing, Agnes Tirop will be laid to rest shortly in what is, uh, I'm sure, an emotional day, a couple of days there. Tell us more about that and the ongoing police investigations into her murder. Yeah, you're right, uh, Mahia. That uh, burial ceremony and prayers going on just a few meters from where I am. Uh, in the past few minutes, athletes from Uganda, including uh, uh, Joshua Cheptegei, the reigning Olympic champion, uh, Pearl Chemutai, the women's 3,000 meters uh, champion, have arrived uh, in this ceremony, uh, as well as, as you mentioned, representatives uh, from World Athletics. They are talking about uh, the life of Agnes Rope, whose life was cut short, uh, with pleas uh, to the government, to the investigative authorities, to ensure that no stone uh, is left unturned, so, uh, so to speak, and that uh, the killer or the alleged um, uh, you know, suspect uh, is, is brought to book. We are aware uh, that already he's been arraigned 
and uh, he will face his time in court in the coming days. Uh, Mahia, the speakers that are speaking in this uh, funeral uh, are calling on authorities uh, to do more to protect, particularly the vulnerable spokesmen and women of Kenya. There have been calls, particularly during this uh, burial, by female athletes uh, asking the National Olympic Committee of Kenya and the Athletics Federation uh, to spend more time listening to athletes, to spend more time uh, particularly increasing the gender uh, inclusion in terms of coaches and other technical officials uh, into the sport uh, to be able to give uh, the girls and women in athletics uh, time uh, to be able to confide, so to speak, uh, when matters such as this are uh, happening. Uh, we have also heard during this uh, uh, burial uh, issues about mental health being projected very clearly with calls such as the government uh, to include the, uh, the issue of, of athletes' wellness and mental being uh, in their planning. And there have been calls, in fact, uh, for, for budgetary allocation, really, to try and help athletes, especially those who may have suffered uh, during the lockdown occasioned by the COVID-19 pandemic last year. So Agnes Tirop will be laid to rest uh, shortly uh, in her rural home. Uh, people are still uh, shocked here at, at the murder, but they are saying uh, let this be the last moment that they are gathering, not to celebrate an achievement of an athlete, but uh, uh, an event like this. And they are calling on government and everybody uh, to be able to uh, not just have a conversation at this, uh, at this stage, but also to do something about it. So it's going to be a long day here, Maya, very emotional indeed, as you mentioned. And for the people of uh, this place, uh, they are saying they have lost one of their own at just the tender age of 25. And Sadiq, as you mentioned, their gender-based violence uh, among athletes is reported to be a matter of concern here in Kenya. Why is this the case and how is the issue then being addressed? Mahia, the issue of Samuel Wanjiru, who died in uh, controversial circumstances uh, about 12 years ago, uh, was also revisited uh, in this burial. And uh, speakers after speaker are calling on the government uh, to, to expedite investigation into that case, uh, which was also controversial in nature. And now they are talking about uh, Agnes Tirop uh, saying... Uh, uh, the sport of athletics, and not just athletics, but other sports across the country need to take a very closer look at the plight of particularly women. Uh, there have been cases we have reported uh, of gender-based violence, even in basketball uh, in Kenya, and speakers are calling on government and the sports ministry uh, to hasten the investigation into allegations and into reports of gender-based violence, uh, calling on protection of uh, uh, the, the victims, and quick justice uh, should be dispensed, they say, uh, to the suspects uh, and the perpetrators of uh, gender-based violence. They are calling on government uh, to take uh, a leaf from what uh, was discussed at the Olympic Games. Athletes from around the world spoke about the issue of mental health. They wanted the same conversation here in Kenya, but they are saying again uh, that this should be the last time that an athlete or a sportsman or woman should die as a result of gender-based violence. All right, Sadiq, thank you very much for speaking to us on Africa Live. Sadiq Shaban in Nandi County and what is an emotional day in uh, the north of the country. Well, the death of the death of a... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Africa Live. And uh, dealing uh, with a number of uh, burning and pressing issues uh, in Africa and around the world. Uh, the last uh, report was on the murder of uh, athlete Agnes T. 
Turup of uh, the East African state of Kenya, record-breaking uh, woman athlete uh, who was killed apparently uh, from gender-based violence. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast for today, uh, Saturday, October 23rd, 2021. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with Johnny Griffin's sectet. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 